Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word, for men and women who care so much to hear it, that they are here tonight and they are sharing it with friends. And they are ready to sit down at your feet and submit themselves to the authority of your word. And that they will set aside in their hearts those things that they have that are contrary to your word, that they will submit themselves to what it demands, that they will oblige themselves, Father, to consider it carefully and share it with others, that this book of words, Father, that constitute your word is life to each of us. Father, that is such a remarkable thing. How sad is it, Father, that for many in the body of Christ it is lacking, it is absent. And Father, for that matter, forgive us for those times when we took it for granted, when it sat on our shelf, when we sought advice from the world rather than from you, when we read it but did not do it. And all the ways, Father, that we might neglect what you've given us, Father, we ask your forgiveness. But now, Father, as we turn to it once more, we come with a heart that is delighted to hear, with a mind that is intrigued by what it will learn, and with a soul, Father, that will be nourished by what we gain from it, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week I said we studied the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Those were the chief antagonists in the Gospels. We saw them come into the scene for the very first time, so we spent some time learning about them. We're going to have a lot of opportunity to talk about these characters down the road because they come up all the time in the study of the Gospels, as you know. But for now, we've seen them come and go, and we're going to put them aside because we have other things that we need to look into from the text. Tonight we pick up in chapter 3, verse 13. And this will be the first mention in Matthew's Gospel of Jesus as an adult. And it comes at the moment that Jesus begins his public ministry, that moment when he transitions from private life to public life. And that starts at chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus, answering him, said, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. All right, well, that's what we have to study tonight. Jesus comes out from his home. In Mark's Gospel, we're told the home specifically is Nazareth, which is in the Galilee. He travels out to find John in the Jordan River Valley by the water, baptizing, and he comes to be baptized. Now, immediately, John objects to Jesus coming to him to be baptized. He says to Jesus that he, John, needed to be baptized by Jesus, not the other way around. Now, naturally, when you read that, what do you assume? Well, you assume that John knew Jesus was the Messiah, and therefore John felt, you know, this is highly inappropriate. I should not be baptizing the Messiah. The Messiah should be baptizing me, right? It's opposite of the truth. The truth of what's going on here is exactly the opposite of what you and I may have assumed. At the moment these two men met in the desert, John did not know that Jesus was the Messiah, for If John had known that Jesus was the promised one, he would have been even more willing to baptize him, without question. Let me explain. To understand properly why that's true, you need to consult first another gospel, John's gospel. And in the first chapter of John's gospel, 
John the Baptist, being quoted, retells the story of how this event went down. Let me read you what John the Baptist says about this very moment that we're reading about now in Matthew. It's in John chapter 1, verse 29. I'm going to read from there to 34. If you want to look there with me, you can. But John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he, speaking of John the Baptist, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who is of higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And then John says this, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The passage I read, starting in verse 29, begins with the phrase, the next day. In other words, at this point in John's Gospel, we're on the day after Jesus was baptized. So the day after John had baptized Jesus, on that day, John is now retelling the story. And he's saying, I know Jesus now is the Messiah. How does John say that he came to know that Jesus was the Messiah? Well, he says in John's Gospel, it was because after he baptized him, the dove came, landed on him. Voila, that means he's the Messiah. That's what God told me to look for. I saw it. Now I know he is the promised one. All right, so John says he came to know Jesus was Messiah because after that moment of baptism, he saw the dove and that's what he was looking for. But then in verse 31, in that passage from John, John the Baptist adds this comment. He says, now wait, I did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah before that. In fact, he was so insistent that you and I understand that point, he repeats it. Notice in verse 33, he says it again. He just wants everyone to be clear about this. I didn't know it was him before I baptized him. John did not know Jesus was the Messiah when Jesus came asking for baptism. He only knew about it after the event when he saw the dove. And that just raises the question. Why, first of all, was John so determined to convince us that he didn't know? And then, of course, why did he act like he didn't want to do it? First of all, I think he wants you to know that he didn't know because it would be suspicious. Think about it. John's been walking around saying, I know who the Messiah is going to be. God's going to show it to me. When I see him, I'm going to tell you. And then, lo and behold, he picks a family member. Right? He says, oh, it's my cousin. That sounds pretty suspicious, doesn't it? Very convenient, John. It's one of your family members that we're supposed to follow. So to defend that, John feels he has to make this point very clearly. I didn't know, really. My cousin, yeah, who would have thought? I didn't know. How do you know then, John? Because I was told beforehand there would be a sign from God, and it happened after I baptized him. So on the next day, he could say that. Now, if John the Baptist was in the dark about Jesus' true identity, even though they were cousins... Well, then you certainly have to assume everyone else was in the dark also, right? All this does is reinforce the fact that there was a true humanity to Christ. He lived an absolutely normal human life up until the age of 30 because he was fully human. He was not superhuman. He was not like Clark Kent. You know, it was not like he could stop bullets and see through walls. He just wore a regular suit all the time so you couldn't tell. He was an absolutely, totally normal human being. His life prior to this moment was completely unremarkable. He was truly just a man. 
although he was God and he was our creator. And he was sinless, which tells you something. Apparently, a person can live a sinless life without drawing too much attention to himself. I know the feeling. But this this would also explain why the Gospels have so little detail about Jesus' early years. Because why go to the effort to record an otherwise mundane, ordinary life? He just went to work, he got up, he went home every day. There was nothing going on. That answers the question of why he was so insistent. John the Baptist wanted us to know that there was nothing that could have told him in advance that Jesus was the Messiah. He was as surprised as we were. But now, why didn't John want to baptize Jesus when Jesus came to him if he did not know that Jesus was the Messiah? The only way he knew was because the sign he had been given in advance was fulfilled after the baptism. Think about this. If John had even suspected that Jesus was the Messiah, wouldn't he have been more interested in baptizing him? Because he's already been told, you'll only know when I show you the sign. And the sign's going to come after you baptize somebody. So if John had any reason to think that Jesus was the fellow, he would have thought, oh, I always wondered about you. Here, get in the water. Let's see if you're the guy. You see? Why didn't he want to do it? It makes no sense if he thought he was the Messiah. It only makes sense if he didn't think he was the Messiah. In which case, then you only have one reason for why he thought he shouldn't be baptizing Jesus. It's because Jesus was sinless. Remember, John knew Jesus probably pretty well. I mean, they they were cousins only six months apart. They probably grew up playing together at least once in a while. Their parents obviously knew each other. And so John probably knew that the last person on earth that needed a baptism of repentance was Jesus. Remember, John's been ministering in this desert to tax collectors, Roman soldiers, prostitutes, The lowest of the low. He's been performing a baptism that was all about repenting of sin. And the people he had been ministering to were people who were far from God. They were ashamed of their lives. They felt convicted. They wanted to get right with God. They were repenting. They wanted to change their lives. And so John's in the middle of that ministry. and He looks up and here comes his goody two-shoes cousin who has never done a wrong thing as far as John can remember. And, And not in some sanctimonious, pious way. I mean, Jesus was a loving, humble person because he was sinless. He was the kind of person everybody wanted to know. He comes out and he says, yeah, I'm here to be baptized too. And John says to himself, you're the last guy I would expect to see out here. In fact, I have more sin than you do. If there was anybody here that needs to repent to the other, it would be me to you under these circumstances. I think that's what he's saying. So he's not calling him the Messiah. He's simply acknowledging the fact that this is not something you need. Now, when John says that, when he says, I have more need to be baptized by you than you do by me, he was both right and wrong. On the one hand, he was right in the sense that, yes, he did have more sin than Jesus. He had infinitely more sin than Jesus. So he realizes that there's something askew in this relationship because Jesus is sinless, God incarnate, never a sin according to Scripture. But at the same time, John was wrong. He was wrong to think that it was not appropriate for him to baptize Jesus. And here's why. Because Jesus was not coming to receive a baptism of repentance. He had no need to repent. That's not why he came. He was coming to John for an entirely different set of purposes. Jesus was obeying the command of the Father 
And likewise, he was ensuring that John would be obeying the command of the Father. Specifically, Jesus says, as you notice in the text, that this moment was fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And the the Greek word translated fitting there, it literally means in the Greek to be clearly seen. In other words, Jesus is saying, in doing this thing, we will be displaying righteousness as we obey the Father. Jesus didn't need to be baptized for repentance, but he did need to receive John's baptism in order to be obedient to the Father. That meant it was required to fulfill all righteousness. A simple way of saying it is if he didn't get baptized, he'd be sinning. And he wasn't about to do that. But if Jesus' baptism by John was not a baptism for repentance, what did it achieve then? What exactly was the purpose behind the Father asking it to happen? And there are a number of reasons. First, it served as a capstone moment in John's ministry of announcing the coming Messiah. Remember, John's the guy that Isaiah 40 says will be raised up in the wilderness, crying out, declaring a Messiah is about to come. John was that guy. And so for the past probably six months, we guess, John's been in the desert doing that very thing, obeying that call. And then as people came and recognized the truth of what he said and believed in what he said, he baptized them because they were willing to receive his message that a Messiah was coming. And now the Father's willing to reveal his Son as that Messiah, which would mean, you know, John's ministry is over. He's done his part. We don't need another herald in the desert competing with Jesus now that Jesus is on the scene. It's time for John to step aside, time to retire so to speak, time to hand off to Jesus. God the Father has determined that that handoff would take place in the moment of a baptism. So the act of John lowering Jesus into the water of the Jordan and raising Jesus back up was a symbolic way of John passing the baton to Jesus so that as Jesus comes up out of the water, he must increase, but I must decrease, as John says elsewhere. So that's one reason. One reason is it's the formal moment John's ministry gives way to Jesus' ministry. Second reason, Jesus' baptism serves as the moment that the Father unveils Jesus as the promised one and then empowers him to conduct his public ministry from that point forward. In verse 16, Matthew says that as Jesus comes up out of the water, the heavens opened. Wouldn't you love to have seen that? And at that moment, John saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and alighting or coming upon Jesus. Now, the resting of the Spirit of God upon Jesus is the moment, hear me here, this is the moment Jesus obtained supernatural power. This is the moment Jesus gained his supernatural power. The Holy Spirit empowers Jesus to accomplish the miracles that he then uses in the course of his public ministry to authenticate himself as Jesus. And if you're doubting what I say, give me a minute. The mystery of God taking on flesh, of the incarnation. Paul describes it this way in Philippians 2, 5. Paul speaking to the church, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. He says, before coming to earth... Christ existed in the form of God. God's form is a mystery to us. That's not the point. But the point is, whatever that form is, Jesus had it. And he had equality with God. Or as John says in his gospel, the word Jesus was with God and was God. And yet, Paul says, Jesus did not consider that position something to be grasped, or you could use the word clinged, cling to, 
As if somebody is getting ripped away and they're trying to hold on. Jesus didn't have that attitude. He was willing to forgo his form as God and his position of equality with the Father. He gave that up voluntarily. No one took it from him. He made a decision in obedience to the Father to give it up. The writer of Hebrews says he did it for a little while. But to do that, and here's the remarkable part about the Incarnation. This is not God playing man. This is not God just putting on a man's suit and walking around like man for a while, while secretly inside he's still God. Yes, his identity doesn't change. He's always God in his identity. But he emptied himself, Paul says. Literally in the Greek, it means Jesus made his form void. That's what Paul writes in Greek. Putting it aside, in other words. And in the place of the form of God, Jesus assumed the form of man, Paul says, which is a servant of God. Now, let me ask you, can a man walk on water? No. Can a man heal a disease with just his word? No. Can a man raise people from the dead? No. Only God can do those things. And when Jesus emptied himself, giving up his form, giving up his power as God, so that he could take on the form of flesh, he gave up his ability to do those things. Never gave up his identity. He always was God. But when he became a man, Jesus gave up that form and his power. In other words, he wasn't just looking like a man. He was a man. Fully God, fully man. But fully God emptied. Fully God without the form. The writer of Hebrews, quoting the Psalms, put it this way in Hebrews 2.6. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Oh, the son of man that you are concerned about him. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and you have appointed him over the works of your hands. That's from the Psalms. It's messianic. It doesn't just describe humanity. It describes the Son of God specifically. God making Jesus a little lower than angels for a while. What's lower than an angel? Man. So that's what it meant for Jesus to become man. It meant he entered into the very creation that he made, and by entering into it, he chose to become limited by it. That raises a conundrum that you're waiting for me to address. If Jesus were to perform all the miracles that he did in authenticating his ministry and his message, where'd the power for all those miracles come from? And the answer is the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Godhead comes upon the second person of the Godhead to empower that person for ministry while in the form of man while on earth. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus validated his claims to be Messiah, Son of God, foretold in Scripture. And every time Jesus performed a miracle before the people, it was actually a work or you could say a testimony of the Holy Spirit working in the Son of God. Now you want to see examples of this, I'm sure, and I'm going to show you a few from Scripture. First, the Gospels make frequent mention of the Spirit's role in directing and empowering Jesus in his ministry. In Matthew 4, which we'll see next time, Jesus is said to be led into the wilderness by the Spirit. In Matthew 10, you're going to see Jesus himself crediting the Holy Spirit with his power of casting out demons. Jesus himself says this is done by the power of the Spirit. In fact, in that same chapter, Jesus says when the Pharisees tried to discredit Jesus' miracle and call it a result of Satan, of Beelzebub, what does Jesus then say? They were guilty of blaspheming who? The Holy Spirit, because that's who did the work. And then later in Luke's gospel, Luke reports that Jesus' communion with the Father, while he lived on earth in the form of man, was made possible by the Holy Spirit. 
It was as if the Spirit was a conduit between the Son and the Father, while the Son had the form of man. And the conduit worked in both directions, by the way, because in Acts we're told that God revealed His will to Jesus and to the apostles by means of the Holy Spirit. And then you're going to find this intriguing moment in the Gospel of Mark. A time when Jesus could not perform miracles in his own hometown of Nazareth. This comes in Mark 6, chapter 1. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at Jesus. Jesus said to them, A prophet's not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his own relatives, and in his own household. And Jesus could do no miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. Now Mark said Jesus could not perform miracles in Nazareth, except for a few isolated healings. Now notice, Mark did not write that Jesus would not perform the miracles. He wrote, Jesus could not perform the miracles. Clearly, he was not in control, not fully in control, of when and where he used his miraculous power. He was dependent on the Spirit to empower him for ministry according to the will of the Father. And since the Nazarenes refused to believe in Jesus, the Spirit declined to do more than a few miracles in that town. And then finally, one last proof. It's notable that there is no record of Jesus performing any miracles prior to his baptism. The very first one he does, as you know, is turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And that's in John chapter 2. That happens after he was baptized by John. So in taking on flesh, Jesus voluntarily relinquished his form of God along with his power so that as a man now, he's required to depend on the Holy Spirit to give him the power to do what he does. And the Holy Spirit does not come upon Jesus until he's baptized by John. At that moment, the Holy Spirit now has empowered Jesus for the purpose of his public ministry, and the water baptism that Jesus takes on with John is a picture for those onlookers at the water, a symbolic representation that the Holy Spirit has now come to me so that I may minister to you. That physical moment of Jesus' body being immersed in the water was a picture or a symbolic representation of Jesus' spirit being immersed with the Holy Spirit. Now, Matthew also tells us that as that moment happened, it was accompanied by a theophany. That's a fancy word for the physical manifestation of God. In this case, it was the Holy Spirit being portrayed as a dove, landing on Jesus. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is not a dove. So this is a vision that God created to communicate the Spirit's arrival. Now, the choice of a dove is significant. You may remember in the very first verses of the Bible in Genesis 1, the very first time the Spirit is actually mentioned, chapter 1, verse 2, fluttering as it says in our English Bible, over the surface of the deep. The word in Hebrew for fluttering is a word that's used specifically to talk about how a mother bird kind of hovers over her nest. And the rabbis, when they read that and saw that verb, they had concluded, for whatever reason, that the bird must be a dove. So it's not that that's important, except that for a Jew to have a theophany of a dove landing on Jesus, it was a pretty clear symbol to them that that's the Holy Spirit coming to land on Jesus. And so to make sure that John the Baptist got the message, the Father brings this theophany, and then on top of that, we're told that the Father speaks from heaven, testifying audibly, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, another biblical understatement, right? Because saying that he, I am well pleased, that's saying I could not be more pleased 
than I am with the Son that I have in front of me, the Son of God. This is one of three times that you hear in the Bible of God the Father speaking audibly in affirmation or in, in support of His Son. Now, who saw that and who heard that? Well, according to the text, only John. John alone was the one who was told to look for these things. He was the only one who understood them. No one else in the moment was privy to it. Notice in verse 16, the text says, He saw the dove. Singular. Not they. That's speaking of John the Baptist. And in John's gospel, the passage we already read, John the Baptist says, He saw that sign, and that's why he's now testifying to everyone that Jesus is the Son of God. So, what about those crowds that were there in the moment? Well, they were expected to receive John's word as a prophet. The word of God was enough for them. They didn't need signs and wonders. So the word of the prophet was to be sufficient, testifying Jesus is the Messiah. I told you I would point him out. Here he is. Only John needed that supernatural confirmation so that he knew which guy to point to. So it was from God to John, from John to the people, this is the Messiah. That's still true today, by the way, generally speaking. God reveals himself to his people by his word through the prophets who wrote it, the ones who wrote it got the supernatural manifestations from God so that they would know that they're getting something from God. They wrote it. We trust them. That's how it works in faith. Anyway, the next day, John the Baptist is declaring, hey, that guy you see right there, that's the guy I baptized yesterday. He's the Lamb of God. He's the one I told you to look for. I now know it's him. He came to me yesterday. The dove came. This is the guy. But John himself did not fully grasp what he was saying, even as he said that. How do we know that? Well, he knew Jesus was to be a sacrifice for sin. That's why he called him the Lamb of God. But later in the Gospels, in Luke, you find this interesting moment where John the Baptist sends some of his followers back to where Jesus was at that point and asks him, are you the expected one that we've been waiting for? You know that passage? Anybody remember that passage? It goes like this, Luke 7, 19. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? Now, this is long after John had baptized Jesus. So that question is confusing, right? He seemed really convinced that Jesus was the Lamb of God the day after, and now he's got his disciples wondering, well, maybe, are you the one? What's up with that? Well, what John is doing is he's been influenced by some misunderstandings that rabbis had concerning the Messiah in their day. Over the centuries, the rabbis of Israel had looked at the text of Scripture, and they'd noticed something. They concluded that God was going to send a suffering prophet to die for his people, Israel, because that's written in the text of the old prophets. But they also read passages that said God's going to send a Messiah to conquer and reign and rule the world. They read that too. And so they had to conclude, how do we put these two together? And you know how they did that? They said there's going to be two Messiahs. There's going to be one who comes to die and one who comes to rule. It's a perfectly reasonable conclusion if you don't know better. And they were teaching that. When they couldn't understand how one Messiah could die and rule, they came up with two Messiahs. Now, obviously, we know that's the wrong answer. There will not be two coming Messiahs. There will be one Messiah who has two comings. We now get it. And in between there, there's a death and resurrection, something they did not understand. So Jesus came the first time as a suffering prophet to die for our sins. He returns to earth the second time in power and glory to reign over earth as a king. And in the meantime, by the way, he lives to intercede for us before the Father. He is our high priest, prophet, priest, and king in that order. After the dove arrived, John realized, ah, my cousin Jesus is the suffering servant sent to die for the sins of his people, the Lamb of God. And then a few months later, he starts to wonder, I think Jesus might be more than that. He might be the conquering king also. 
And so to be sure, he sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, are you the expected one? That is to say, are you the other Messiah also? And the answer that Jesus gives to John confirms that Jesus fulfills all messianic prophecies, not just some. So John's baptism of Jesus brought John's ministry to an end. We said that. It began Jesus' public ministry. We've now established that. But it serves one more purpose, one that relates to you and me as well. It establishes a model for how Jesus' followers are to repeat what he did so we can identify with him. Just as he received water baptism to fulfill all righteousness, so are his followers now called to do the same, and to do it, by the way, for exactly the same reasons Jesus took it on. It starts in the Great Commission. You know that, right? Matthew 28, the end of this book, commonly called the Great Commission. We hear this, chapter 28, verse 18. It says, Jesus came up and spoke to the disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Great commission. Many of you have probably memorized that. And as I mentioned in an earlier week, the Greek word for baptize, it literally translates to dip. So the concept of baptism is to be immersed, to be dipped into water. In verse 16, it says, Matthew describes Jesus as coming up from the water. You notice that in your text? Coming up. You don't come up from a sprinkling. You come up from an immersion. Plus, if all John needed to do to accomplish his work was to sprinkle people with water, he wouldn't need to go all the way out to the Jordan. He could have done it anywhere. So it's clearly he's out there dunking people. That's obvious. So from all the evidence that we have in Scripture, the biblical act of baptism is always and only immersion of a full body in water. Sprinkling some part of a person's body is not a baptism. It's just a man-made ritual. It has no spiritual significance. It is not a substitute for baptism. Furthermore, only a proper baptism can fulfill all righteousness, as Jesus declared for himself when he met before John. Because only full immersion in water can serve the purpose that God has in instituting the thing in the first place, both for Jesus and for us. The imagery is so specific and it's very profound. Paul explains why God instituted this process of dunking bodies in water, first for his own son and then for everyone who follows in his name. He gives us that explanation essentially in Romans chapter 6, in just a few verses. In Romans 6, 3, here's what Paul says about baptism. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, surely we will be in the likeness of his resurrection. That's what Paul writes in Romans 6. He makes a comparison. But to understand what he's saying, you first have to understand what baptism he's talking about. The baptism he's talking about here is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, when you confess Him, when you're saved by your faith, at that moment you are baptized by the Holy Spirit, you receive the Holy Spirit, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Those are all synonyms. To be received by the Holy Spirit, to baptize, to be indwelled, that's all the same thing in the Scripture. Scripture calls that moment the moment that the Holy Spirit comes to live in us forever. It calls that moment the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Another way to say it is, you're born again, by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
The Spirit comes and essentially you are immersed in Him because He's now indwelling you. Every believer has this experience at the moment they believe. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is how you became a Christian. Paul says elsewhere in Romans that all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. To be baptized by the Holy Spirit is to be Christian. To not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is not to be Christian. And you have it by faith alone, just by confession of faith. So our Lord, remember, before the moment of his baptism, did not have the Holy Spirit indwelling him either. He had access to him, but he did not have him on him. The moment he stands in the water and John baptizes him, the Spirit descended on him and remained on him, the Bible says. Just as our Lord had the Spirit of God land on him, so also must we have the Spirit of God immerse us or baptize us. Jesus blazed that path for us, and we now follow it by faith. Paul says that the baptism of the Holy Spirit resulted in our spirit being identified with Christ so that by our faith... Now, what is true for Christ has been credited to us in our heavenly account. Beginning with his death on the cross. Paul says that you have been baptized by your faith into Christ's death. When the Father looks down on his children, those who are of faith, he no longer sees your sins, the Bible says. And the reason he no longer sees your sins is because by the arrival of the Holy Spirit, you've been united with Christ in his death so that the sins you have, past, present, future... They were resting on Christ when he hung on the cross. They died with Christ, so to speak, in terms of your heavenly account. So by faith in Jesus Christ, you died with him in the sense that your sin was paid for. So you don't have to die for yourself. You will not experience the second death. By faith, Christ has experienced it for you. But more than that, Paul says, you've also been united with Christ in his resurrection. Once again, because the Holy Spirit has come to live in us, we follow in the same footsteps that the Holy Spirit brought Jesus through. And so when Jesus died, he lived again, and he was risen from the dead by the glory of the Father, Paul says in the passage I just read. That's a reference to the Spirit raising Jesus from the dead. And so will those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. By the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the moment you believed... You immediately came to share not only in his death, but in the promised future resurrection for all believers. So you don't have to die to pay for your own sins. Jesus' death did that. And you don't have to worry about the death of your body being the end of you because the same spirit who raised Jesus' body will raise yours. New, glorious, and eternal. So you not only shared the fact that in the baptism of water that you received, in the moment of your faith, I should say, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you received the Spirit. Jesus, in his water baptism, received the Spirit. But you also share another aspect. No one can see the moment you believed and the moment you received the Spirit. No one sees that in your life, do they? I mean, you know, the crowd that surrounded Jesus didn't see the Spirit come upon him. They didn't see the dove. They didn't hear God's voice. All they saw was Jesus get in the water and come up and then John say, this is the guy. And similarly, when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, no one saw a dove land on you. And if it did, it was entirely coincidental. It had nothing to do with Jesus. But you didn't glow... You didn't levitate. You believed, you confessed, you were saved, that was it. The Spirit came to make His home in your body, and there was no visible sign of it except your own joy. But the Father didn't want Jesus to remain a secret, so He made sure that somebody saw the dove and somebody could testify, and the same is true for you and me. God does not want Jesus' followers to remain invisible. And He wants us to testify, and to help us have that ability, He gave us this beautiful picture of water baptism. 
So as a believer enters the water, so this is the order, friends. You come to faith in Jesus Christ. You receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, an invisible moment no one can see. But Jesus doesn't want us to be invisible, so he gives us a picture of that moment, a visible version of that moment. It's just a picture. It's not magic. It's just a way of representing something that you couldn't see otherwise. Water baptism is that picture. And as you participate in water baptism, you are testifying about what has already happened to you in the Spirit. You're telling a spiritual story, a story that can only be told in pictures. And here's the story you tell when you get water baptized. The water, as you probably know, some of you may know, that represents the earth in this picture, in this story. The ground, you know, the place where you bury dead bodies. And you're standing in that water when you first get in. And as you're lowered into the water by somebody else, what you're picturing is the burial of a body underwater, underground, so to speak. And then immediately, we hopefully immediately, we raise you right back up out of water. And that raising you up pictures your resurrection out of the grave. So, that's a physical picture of what has already happened by spirit in your heart because of your faith. Jesus was immersed in water to represent to the crowd that he was being immersed by the Holy Spirit at the same moment. And ours is similar in the sense that we're getting in the water to communicate to our observers that we too have received the Holy Spirit by faith at some point earlier. We want water, or we enter the water, to testify that we've received what only can be seen in spiritual terms. Now, perhaps that's the first time you've understood baptism in this way. That is to say, this is the first time someone's taken the time with you to explain what the Bible says about baptism. Not what I think, but what the Bible, what the Lord himself says about this practice. The baptism that Jesus commanded for us, for all his followers, this act that is to fulfill righteousness, which is to obey God. And if that's you, I need to be clear with you. Water baptism does not make you any more righteous than you already were by faith. No more than Jesus' water baptism made him any more righteous than he already was, right? It served a purpose that was beyond that. It's associating us with Jesus. It's declaring us publicly to be followers of Messiah. Just as Jesus' water baptism announced him to the world as Messiah... Our water baptism announces us to the world as well. I now want to identify with the Lord who has saved me. And our water baptism inaugurates our public service. You ever thought about that? You know, Jesus began his public service of ministry from the moment he came out of that water. Before that, he was invisible. After that, you couldn't miss him. And our opportunity to serve the Lord, I'm convinced, is set loose when we obey the command to be baptized. I'm not saying you can't serve Him before that. I'm not saying you can't be useful to Him before that. But my own memory of my own walk with the Lord confirms this in my heart, that there was something about the moment I took the opportunity to get in the water and get out that radically altered the course I was on in serving Christ. And if that's true, I think it's because the very first command Jesus gives to every believer is be baptized. That's the first thing He asks of His followers. It's the very first command you can do in obedience to Christ. But if you're not going to obey the first command, for whatever reason, it's my conviction that God, the Father, Jesus, just looks at us and says, i got all the time in the world. I'll I'll wait with you. And while we're sitting there saying, what do you want me to do? He's saying, I already told you what to do. When you do that, we'll get to number two. I can't prove that from the Bible. I think that's a general truth about God in, in all matters. He doesn't skip steps with us. He waits for us to be obedient. But especially in this case. So, Baptism allows us to fulfill all righteousness. It allows us to come out publicly as a follower of Jesus. It inaugurates our opportunity for public service in the name of Christ. And finally, just as it did for Jesus, 
and for John, it marks a transition of sorts. Because I think every believer should know this about themselves. You have an old life and you have a new life. And I guess depending on when you were saved, the length of time you spent in the old might have been short. You might have been saved as a child and it, maybe that old life was brief, didn't matter very much. But if you're more like me, I was saved around 30 I had plenty of time to remember what it was like not to be a believer. I I have plenty of memories of the old self, that before and after story. And I know that the moment of my faith was the private dividing line between the old and the new. That's when I was born again. But my water baptism was the public dividing moment. That's the moment when I embraced my new life and I declared it publicly. And it was sort of a moment where you can't take it back. You know, there are a lot of closet believers. There are. There are a lot of people I believe have come to faith, they've made a confession, God has turned their heart, and they're born again, but they're determined to keep it quiet. I don't think they've ever said that to themselves. You know, I don't think they sit around and plan it. I just think it's easy. Maybe easier in some ways. It's not going to offend the family who isn't on their side. It's not going to get in the way of their pursuit of life that they would rather make their cause than serving Christ. It's just easy. But it's not right. Every believer is expected to follow the Lord's footsteps, starting with baptism and then moving from there. That's why we're called Christians, by the way. Did you know that that word means little Christ? In its original Greek, it means little Christ. And the funny thing is, it was originally coined to mock Jesus' followers. Those who didn't believe in Christ were calling those who followed him Christians, as in, you're a bunch of little Christs. But then the church adopted that term because in reality, it's a perfect description of what we want to be, isn't it? I mean, we're little in the sense that we're not him, but we want to be like him. We want to be like Christ. Now, perhaps when you were an infant, your parents took you into a church and they had someone sprinkle water on your head. That happened to me. I was raised in a Catholic home. So they dressed you up. They took pictures. They got a certificate. They framed it. They had a big party after it was over. And thereafter, they told you, Don't worry, you've been baptized. If that's the only kind of baptism you've ever received, then on the authority of Scripture, I must tell you, you have never been baptized. You owe Jesus a baptism. And the fact that you didn't know that until now, perhaps, means that you're not culpable for that delay. But now you are. (laughs) Now you know. So if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, but you have never walked into the water to be baptized in the way Christ commanded, you owe him a baptism, and I would love to help you obey that command. To fulfill all righteousness, as the Bible says, in your walk with Christ. Our church is going to hold a baptism later this spring. The only reason I can't give you any detail right yet is because we don't have the logistics worked out. You know, it's a little cold for the backyard pool still. Um, but we're getting there, and hopefully we'll have an easy way to do that soon. By the way, just to identify with you with them for the last moment, I was sitting in a church under a verse-by-verse Bible teacher in my 30s, having come to faith, and as I like to say, just fat, dumb, and happy with where I was with Christ, and that pastor happened to teach on that day out of the Bible on baptism, because that was what was on the page that day, and I remember sitting in the church on that day thinking, my goodness, I need to get baptized. It never dawned on me that what I had happened to me as an infant wasn't a baptism. Now I realize it wasn't. It didn't hurt my feelings. It didn't offend me. I just realized I got something on my checklist now I never realized I needed to do. I talked to the pastor, and in a few months I was baptized. And interestingly, it happened to coincide with my seven-year-old daughter coming to faith, and we were baptized together in the same pool. Isn't that kind of fun, right? That's kind of cool. If you're sitting here and this is you, don't be offended. 
Don't be bothered. Hallelujah. The Lord decided he loves you so much. He didn't want you to miss this. He made a point to tell you about it. But now he expects you to obey him. And I'll tell you from experience, it doesn't hurt. It's very simple, but it's powerful. Trust the Lord to use something like that in your life. Just a small step of obedience. Man, I have talked to so many people. You take that little step of obedience, just a simple thing. Just get in the water. And watch how God will magnify that, accelerate you into ministry, take you someplace you've never thought you would go before, excite you for him and for what he has in your life. I hope that for all of you. I hope that for everyone who's in the body of Christ because it's such a shame to miss it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for something as simple and beautiful as baptism, for what it means, for what it accomplishes in our heart, for how it can be used by you, Father, to witness to the truth of what the Bible says and who you are living in us. Father, I pray for the courage of every man and woman in this room who, having come to know you, but perhaps having not yet stepped into the water, they would act according to all righteousness. Give them the desire, Father, for what you've asked them to do and the excitement for how you will use it in their lives. We ask for that day to come quickly, Father, that we might act soon to obey, not delaying, but eager to please you. And bring us back in future weeks, Father. There's so much more in this book of what you call us to do and following after the footsteps of your Son. And we're eager to do them all. In your power, we pray these things. Amen.